Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryer. Each month I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryer, and this month I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Donald Kirsch. Dr. Kirsch is the co-author of the book, The Drug Hunters, The Improbable Quest to Discover New Medicines. I read this book over the summer and reached out immediately to connect with Don. Well, I, I sort of forced myself onto his calendar for that first call, but we've had several very enjoyable conversations since, and today we will give you a chance to listen in on one. So tell us about the book and, and how you got started and why you wrote the book. People have a, a good read on what lawyers do and what doctors do and what accountants do, but I don't think they have a really good read on what biomedical scientists do. And I, I try to tell them at these get-togethers, but I don't have enough airtime. I just don't have enough airtime to, to express what's going on, what I'm trying to do, what my difficulties are, what my frustrations are. Um, and so, honestly, I, I finally got so gosh darn fed up, I, I wrote this, you know, 200 some odd page book, which took more than a few hours, I can assure you. So, you called yourself a biomedical scientist. What did you do in your career um, before you started writing books? Where did, where did you work and what were you working on during those years? Yeah, so um, I was definitely a, a nerdy kid who you know i didn't play sports in high school and i was just studying science all the time i loved my science courses i loved calculus what an idiot and um <laughs> so when i went to uh, college i said oh i'm definitely going to study science and i went to state u and i majored in biochemistry which you know i i, I liked it i liked these courses I, i'd have to take french i say oh my god i hate french but i i, I like physical chemistry so um, as I was getting to be a junior in, or a senior in college, what am I going to do next? Um, I'm the uh, first generation of my family who went to college. So I didn't have a lot of guidance about what to do next in schooling. And I talked to some of my professors who were really, really great, who really helped me. And they said, well, you know, Don, you're not from a rich family and you're probably going to be you know, stressed to go to medical school. Why don't you get a PhD? You could do that. It, we know you have great grades. We know you're going to have good GREs, and, and you can do that with a fellowship. So I did. I applied to schools. I best school I got into was Princeton. So I went to Princeton for a PhD in uh, molecular biology. And um, as I went through my training, um, I realized that really what I wanted to do was something more applied. I mean, it, it was great to understand first principles of science. Yeah, you got to get your chops in science before you get to apply it. Right, right. But, but I, I really wanted to do something like, like make a, a product, like a drug, like a medicine. Mm -hmm. So I did a uh, postdoctoral stint at uh, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in the pharmacology department. And that gave me an opportunity to learn classic pharmacology. And then from there on, I worked for a succession of uh, uh, big pharma, pharmaceutical companies. N not that I'm a job drumper, 
or something like that. Um, it's just mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> okay. So I ended up working for all these companies. I actually only changed jobs once. And then uh, the uh, sort of inevitable uh, thing in the, in the industry, um, turning 55, uh, my company's going to owe me a big pension. They, of course, don't want to do that, so they lay me off. So then I finished off my career, uh, which is why I'm up in the Boston area with a uh, Cambridge uh, uh, biotech startup. Hmm. So is the, the biotech startup different? Than the uh, larger companies that you work for, or the larger company. <laughs> so um, uh, I've already revealed to you that I'm a musician. So uh, back in the day, one of my favorite groups was the Eagles, and one of their hit, biggest hit songs was "Lying Eyes." Mm -hmm. And if you remember the lyrics from "The Lying Eyes," one of the verses goes, "Every form of refuge has its price." Oh. So uh, that's the way I look at all of my jobs, that they all had advantages and uh, disadvantages. Um, the um, advantage of the biopharma uh, startup is um, uh, lots of opportunity to do things, lots of freedom. Uh, um, you, lots of opportunity, uh, no fixed uh, agenda for what we're going to do, or not, no fixed, not, not a constraining fixed agenda. And then there's the downside, no money. Okay, so I, I didn't appreciate the liberal resources that were at my disposal when I was at these big pharmaceutical companies, but that's the advantage there. And of course, the um, disadvantage is, you know, there's a whole... Uh, business management operation and um, you have all these business constraints you come up with what you think is a great idea for medicine and then you go to uh, uh, the higher ups and they say oh we can't make any, any money off of that forget it very discouraging yeah and it's you're right it's another trade off there where the reason that those you had more freedom in a smaller company is they hadn't built the the history, the track record that constrained them, their, their own success that holds them back. And at the same time, they didn't have the, the adequate resources to fund your team, your project or technology that you wanted to apply. And on the other side, they do have a track record and a history and they know how to do this and you're going to follow those those norms and and it can be constraining. So we, we're talking about your book, but and you said you gave me one reason why you you wrote it. You know the kind of letting people know at a cocktail party what's going on, um, what what really happens. The book though is a a vast history of of the origin of medicines, and it's a wonderful read from beginning to end. Well, thank and you. That's very flattering. Thank it's, you. It's very good and. I, I loved hearing things. I loved it and hated parts of it, which is I loved hearing about it and then realizing, wait a minute, that's in my lifetime. These were things that already happened. And it's like, no, it was stuff that was happening when I was around already. It's that the real uh, success of medicines has only come in the last century or so. And that's pretty striking when you think about how long people have been around that we've just turned this corner. Um, so let me, you know, as you were writing the book, what did you learn 
that you didn't know before about that whole history and about your own your own career? So um, what people, I think, don't appreciate is that you don't go to school to learn how to discover drugs. Basically, people go to school to become a biochemist or a molecular biologist or a microbiologist or something like that. But you never get trained to do that. You just It's, it's all on-the-job training. You go and... Um, uh, work with other people who are more experienced than you and you kind of learn by watching them. So um, I really wanted to formalize my understanding of how this worked. And so I started thinking historically, well, it must have been some first guy who didn't have colleagues, who wasn't in a company, who said, I'm going to discover medicine. What was he thinking or she thinking? And uh, that's kind of where it all started. And then um, it was kind of interesting to see how it all evolved from some uh, primitive cave person uh, looking in the forest because uh, uh, his kid is sick or her kid is sick and finding some root or berry and say, I'm just going to hope for the best and give it to my kid. And 99 times out of 100, uh, nothing, you know, the kid got was sick anyway. And every once in a while, a miracle happened and the kid got better. And he or she, she told all their friends, oh, this kind of berry is really good for, for this affliction. So... Um, as we talked previously, so um, part of this uh, evolved into my teaching a class at Harvard Extension School on uh, uh, drug discovery. And so uh, one of the things I do in my class um, is to talk about how groups, groups of people, groups of scientists work together. In academia, it's basically all lone wolves. Mm -hmm. There's the high, high, uppity, uppity up uh, professor, and he or she has a small cadre of students, and they all work together, but they're, but they're working as a, as a separate unit. They don't collaborate with anybody else at the university. Little known secret. But in uh, industry, um, it's these massive groups working together, and I try to tell my students it has to be a massive group because one person can't do it. So maybe you know, Kevin, the answer to this, I, I asked my class in an early lecture, um, what was the most recently discovered drug that was discovered by a single individual? One person working all by themselves. Do you know? No, I don't. So it was ether, oh. <laughs> franesthesia, William T.G. Morton, 1846, and um, just himself, and uh, he, he was a, a medical student, but working part-time as a dentist, started uh, uh, testing ether on his dental patients when he, not, he yanked their teeth out, and uh, that was it. And that was the most recent and the last drug to be discovered by a single person. Since then, it's always been a team effort. Yeah, it's... I can't even imagine, even in that case, that how do you do that on his own, right? It's like, I've got some ether here. I think, you know, he had to put some pieces together. He had to have been talking to other people somehow, even though he did that on his own, there was this, this group around him that was somehow giving him well, the gut feel well, that this well, would work. ether is an interesting example because it was first synthesized i believe in the 1600s 
maybe 1500s, by a physician, so-called physician scientist, Valerius Cortis. And um, he synthesized this, just hoping this new chemical could, could be a medicine. Um, uh, he concluded there was no use. It was never going to cure disease. Uh, Paracelsus, who is a contemporary of his, also a uh, physician who did experiments, um, he tested it, same, same conclusion. Uh, um, uh, he said it's very, very safe. He said chickens will drink it. Uh, without any harm, he said that they go to sleep for a little while, but then they wake up and they're fine. So think about it. So he knew chickens would drink uh, ether and, and go to sleep for a while, but never put two and two together that it might have any use. And then for hundreds of years thereafter, uh, um, people were still playing with this stuff, but um, never uh, connecting it to what it might be used for. Um, in the first um, issue of the New England Journal of Medicine, which you know is a very, very uh, uh, prestigious uh, uh, um, medical journal. So one of the papers in the very first um, issue uh, was about angina pectoris, which if you're not a physician, it's a disease when the blood in your heart doesn't flow very well, and when you exercise, you feel pain in the chest. So the person who wrote this article suggested different treatments that could be used for that, um, by the way, none of which actually work, um, several of which are very toxic, and one of which was ether. So as recently as the early 19th century, people are still playing with this stuff, trying it for all different kinds of things, angina, this thing and the other thing, never figuring it out. And um, I think, you know, Morton, I don't know, he made just a brilliant... Uh, um, one-off thing. He had this great thought. The uh, thing it reminds me of is in companies, you're looking at thousands and thousands of compounds, many of which have biologic activity, but don't turn out to be the biologic activity you want, or they might have a side effect that, that wasn't what you wanted. And it takes somebody from an outside perspective to go, well, why couldn't we use that for this? Um, and speaking of angina, angina pectoris, you know, Viagra had its beginnings with angina. And someone noticed a very peculiar side effect. And in fact, I'm interviewing someone soon about that story. Um, but yeah, so they noticed a side effect and someone said, we should make this into a product. Everybody laughed. And then they stopped laughing when they looked at the potential. And now it's actually used for pulmonary hypertension so it which actually is nasty, took a, which is a nasty disease and it's and it's great that it works for that yeah right and it's it's putting together the not just the science of what's going on biochemically but what happens clinically and when people they're so specialized that they don't look at those other opportunities to use something you actually need to bring those other specialists in sometime and as we before we started talking today, we were talking about patients being a specialist, being uh, having a certain expertise. And that's what this is all about is, you know, how do we incorporate that patient knowledge and their wild ideas? Because they may have really good ideas that, you know, us learned scientists just missed. Well, I mean, going back to what the point you made about uh, Viagra, Sildenafil, um, 
So when this clinical observation of what it did, uh, I mean, uh, I've spoken with other people at, at the Pfizer. You probably know this way better than I do. But there was a lot of question, do patients actually want this drug? Is, is there a medical need? And as you just said, so they talked to urologists and they talked to patients and the people who, you know, the Pfizer execs and the people who really know, oh, yeah, we want this stuff. Oh, yeah, this isn't, you know. Yeah, it's a, a you know, it, sometimes there's a medicine looking for a condition to treat. And I think that we haven't figured out a way to look at all those, what we used to call the dead compounds. And, and if you could do that and look back at, well, what was the theory behind this compound? How does that theory relate to the condition I'm looking at? Um, people are starting to do that on the rare disease side. They call it repurposing. But there's really no good way to look at the dead drugs, the ones that didn't make it to market. Um, the best example I can think of, or, or the most obvious, is thalidomide, which, which obviously had problems. And it was, you know, the poster child for a toxic drug. Exactly. And now it's, it's back and it's being used successfully. And so those are the types of things that make it very complex and interesting in this business. Um, so so I, just, I just think this is a business which is so, there's so much information out there that nobody keeps it all in their head. And so just like with, you know, this guy Morton or, or the Viagra story, um, if only you could analyze and keep all this information in your head, you could, you know, connect, connect the dots. But, but it becomes just a random thing so much to co connect the dots because nobody has the whole story in their mind. All my friends who are looking at artificial intelligence will be glad you said that because that's the promise of, of AI is you can connect all those dots somehow. I still contend you got to find the dots first. The, the, the AI is not going to come up with the dots. You have to find those compounds and what was learned about them. So can you tell us a little bit about We've talked about your book a lot, and we'll come back to that, but tell tell me a story about something you worked on, and it can be a success or a failure, whatever, but something you actually worked on, because that's what this is about, is our own story. So, so um, all right. So, so I'll tell you something about my first job, which was at Squibb, uh, which is now half of Bristol-Myers Squibb, and um, this was um, during, maybe I'll say a little preamble. So this was doing the beginning of the AIDS era, and I was working on antifungals. You said, well, wait a minute, AIDS is a, it's a viral disease. Why are you working on antifungals? So at the time, there was no antiretroviral medication. As a matter of fact, there was only one drug up to that point that had been discovered that um, was treated a viral disease. So it looked like it was going to be a really long slog to come up with drugs that could treat HIV per se. And we knew at the time that fungal infections were the major cause of morbidity in HIV. Mortality is death, morbidity is severe suffering illness. And so we said, well, it's probably a better chance that uh, we could um, do something 
to help patients by coming up with an antifungal, at least reduce their suffering. That, that's not bad. So um, that was the uh, project I was doing, and I'll, I'll tell another little story, if I might. We needed to analyze some samples. I didn't have the methodology at the lab where I worked to analyze them, but there was a scientist at Fox Chase Cancer Center who, who had the analytical methods. So I called him up. This is before email. So I actually called him on the telephone and I asked if he could analyze some samples for me pro bono, just to do me a favor. He said, sure, sure, sure. So um, I got in my car and I'm driving down the New Jersey Turnpike, which is the local name for Route 95, the major mm -hmm. north-south highway on the East Coast. And I'm um, driving down Route 95. I'm listening to NPR on the uh, car radio. And this guy comes on and he's being interviewed. And he said, well, he had lived a very dissipated existence, lots of drugs, uh, lots of alcohol. He spent all his time in these bathhouses trying to have as much sex as he possibly could with as many different men. And then one day he started feeling a little crummy and then it just didn't go away and it kept on getting worse and worse and worse mm -hmm. and worse. So he went to the doctor and he was diagnosed with, with HIV AIDS. So he said, so now he's an HIV AIDS activist. So he wanted to, you know, help get a cure for AIDS. That was his per new purpose in life. And so the interview said, interviewer said, well, what, what do you think needs to be done to, to cure this disease? He said, well, the stunning finding that I came up with is that I learned that um, the people working on AIDS weren't the best scientists. They're all second raters. Well, at that point, I, I almost lost control of my car pulled over to the side of the road and I've got my ice bucket with my samples in it. The ice is melting, but I just, I couldn't drive for 15 minutes. Cars are zooming by 75 miles an hour. I was just so upset. You know, I don't know. I'm trying my very, very best here. I'm working long hours. I, I went to graduate school for six years. Uh, I already said I had four years in college. Um, and, and six years, may, I wasn't the best student. Six years may sound like a long time, but one of my classmates won the Nobel Prize, and it took him five years to get his PhD. <laughs> so I don't think six years is way out of yeah. you know, ordinary. And, uh, um, and, and now I'm doing my best here. I'm working long hours. That was a very discouraging thing. I finally got my car going again, and I brought the samples in. I've been having terrible um, disputes with management um, about my program, and um, sort of all... So now I'm discouraged because of what this, this adv AIDS advocate said. And it all came to a head when the company decided, which was, I think, a good decision, to become a cardiovascular powerhouse. They had just gotten uh, Captopril uh, mm -hmm. approved. Uh, first year that Captopril was uh, in full approval, it made more money for the company than all their other products combined. And... Um, then they had licensed uh, um, pravastatin, an anti-cholesterol drug from Sankyo, and that was making all kinds of money. So they hired a man named Edgar Haber to be the head of research. And Edgar was a great scientist. 
He had been the head of uh, uh, cardiology at Harvard Medical School. Great publication record. Really, really smart guy. Um, but no industrial experience. Mm -hmm. Although he was far better scientist than I would ever hope to be, he just didn't know how to run a industrial uh, research organization. He came in and he said, uh, I want everybody just working on things that they find intellectually stimulating and that periodically someone's going to be working on something very interesting intellectually and it'll have an application and we'll seize on that application. Well, as you, Kevin, know, that's not the way it's done. But he... He was one of those follow the science guys, right? That the science will open up and, and there it'll be. Yes. So anyway, and I wasn't a father science guy. I was, I want to think about a disease that's underserved. I want to think about a disease that has suffering patients. And if I can come up with an idea that's going to help these patients, I want to get right on. Yep. Okay. That, that was my way of working. I was supposed to uh, give a uh, seminar to him about the work I had been doing previously, which, as I said, was this, this antifungal project. Mm -hmm. And my boss came to me and said, oh, he said, don't tell Edgar that you're working on antifungals. You're going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble. He said, fortunately, in your case, what you were doing, there was very, very little basic science behind what you were trying to do. So you had to do a lot of basic science to develop methods that you could then apply to find the new antifungal drug. Just talk about the methods. Don't talk about trying to find an antifungal or else you're going to get yourself in a world of trouble. Okay, yes, boss, do as, I'm, do as I'm told. So I put together a seminar and I talked about all these basic methods that we had developed and I kind of implied falsely that we were doing this for the love of science. A um, couple of questions to the audience, everybody applauds, and I go off. And... Um, I'm really serious about leaving the company. I didn't like the matchup between my interests and where they were going. And about 10 days later, I get a uh, phone call from Dr. Haber's secretary. Dr. Haber's upset with you. Wow. That's all I need. The head of research is upset with me. What, what did I do now? <laughs> so she said, well, you're not responding to his emails. So I have to have you think back to 1988. Uh, Dr. Haber was a very visionary guy, and he wanted everyone to have email. And I probably didn't start using email regularly until the 1990s. So um, that was very visionary and very much ahead of the time. But as much money as Squibb had, they really didn't have uh, the um, budget to set up an email system especially given the primitive nature of the technology at the time, for everybody. He went to Brian Bergner, Dr. Haber, who was the head of the IT section. He said, I want everyone to have email. Uh, no change to your budget. Well, even if he'd given him an unlimited budget, he probably couldn't have done it. So um, Brian did a, a workaround. And what the workaround was is he had a server, probably had about 35 ports, so he gave a dedicated report to Dr. Haber and his four direct reports. So they had computers on their desk, and they could email one another at libitum at will. And then the other 3,000 people in the organization, they got a username and an email address. And then he put five computers around the labs for everyone to share. It's about 500 people 
per computer. So you can imagine how often you check email <laughs> if, you had to, if you had to share a computer with 500 other people. Nobody checked email ever. So I find out from Dr. Haber's secretary that uh, I'm in trouble. And immediately I go to the next building, go to Brian Bergner's office, and I said, okay. I said, either you're going to fix this or I am. And I said, if I fix it, what I'm going to do to, is go to Haber and telling him, tell him that you're pulling the wool over his eyes and you're having 500 people share a computer. Oh, no, 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 says Edgar. I says, I'm uh, sorry, Brian. He said, don't do that. Don't tell Edgar that. So I said, well, well, well what are we going to do here? I'm not going to continue being in trouble with uh, Dr. Haber. He said, here's the solution. He said, I'm going to have my secretary log into the computer five times a day on your account. If there's an email waiting for you, she'll print it off on a sprocket printer and then serve as a runner, run over to your building, to your office. She'll bring a stenography pad with her. Okay. You read the email and then you dictate to her your response. <laughs> then she'll go back to her office, log in as you and type in the response. Edgar need never, you know, know any difference. Yeah, he'll be happy and you won't get in any trouble because you'll be effectively checking your email five times a day. Okay. About an hour later, secretary comes over. She's got uh, the printout and the printout says, oh, uh, Don, this is Dr. Haber. And um, at your seminar on your work, Richard Furlow, who was the CEO of Squib, he happened to attend that as well. And he came over to me after your talk, and he said, that was an interesting talk, but the company would really like to have an anti new antifungal agent. Do you think Don could use that work to find a new antifungal drug? Which, of course, is precisely what I was doing, but I wasn't supposed to tell him. So at this point, I'm really pissed off, and I had a written job offer from another company. So I responded, and I, and I knew that this was going to be the absolute most damaging thing I could do to my former employer. And I said, Dr. Haber, I said, I demand intellectual independence. I don't want to have my work dictated by someone else. I don't want you telling me what I can do or what I can't do. I'm very offended. And then uh, a few days later, I turned in my resignation. So to the best of his knowledge, uh, the, the best reason I resigned is that he told me to work on antifungals. No, 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 no. The reason I resigned is that I wasn't being given the liberty and the freedom to, to work on a new drug. I was supposed to be doing basic research. Well, and, and the other thing, the whole email thing, is you didn't have the tools to operate in what he thought the world worked like. So there was no way... You were going to succeed there. So those were a couple of stories where it's like, you know, this is a tough business. So how long, how long did you do pharma and biotech? After I finished my postdoctoral stint, it's probably close to 35 years among, well, Squib, Bristol-Myers Squib, um, Cyanamid Letterly, Wyeth, which then became part of Pfizer, uh, um, and then uh, Canberra uh, Pharmaceuticals uh, startup in Kendall Square. In the face of those kinds of tough difficulties, which happen all the time, you know, you're dealing with what's the public perception, you're dealing with managerial changes and differences. What kept you going? How did you, how did you 
keep coming to work and keep working hard at this. So, you know, I, I, I talk to people about this. I think the person on the street doesn't appreciate that less than 1% of all projects lead to a FDA-approved medicine. So if you can't tolerate frustration and failure, you're in the wrong game. Okay? I mean, this game is all about uh, um, failing, but um, I had an early boss, Richard Sykes, who later became the CEO of GlaxoSmithKline, and he said, Don, he said, in your career, this is the way you need to think about it. He said, imagine you're in a horse race, and you're on top of your horse, and you're riding as fast as you can, and all of a sudden, your horse dies right out from underneath you. He said, what do you do? He said, you immediately run around, you grab another horse, you get on that horse, and then you ride that horse as fast as you can. Because all the other riders, also, they also their horses are also dying from behind, underneath them. And he said, you constantly have to have this upbeat attitude, keep on trying, keep on running the race. No matter what happens, your horse dies, it's a calamity, get another horse, go. And that's what I did. It takes some resilience there to pick up something totally new, may have been a competing project before, but now you're, you're like, got to get on board and let's go. Oh, you know, so, so academic scientists who generally spend their whole life working on one problem, which to the outside world may seem like a very esoteric problem, um, they don't understand that in industry, so I did infectious disease, I did antibacterials, antifungals, application of genomics to um, drug discovery, anti-cancer, uh, um, uh, neurodegenerative disease, because, you know, each time my, my horse died, you know, I found a different horse. Then it was a white horse, and it was a chestnut horse. I don't know. Whatever the horse was I found, rode that horse. Well, and we go back to you got your scientific chops in grad school, and you can apply them to many different fields. That, that was when I first landed at Pfizer. I wish someone had told me earlier on what a, what a vast number of opportunities there were in the scientists. I had no idea. And as you said, no one teaches you how to do this. So are there any last messages you want to leave for my listeners? You know, we're, we're all working really, really hard. I mean, I think, I don't know of a single scientist who is motivated by much else other than inspiration, inspired um, to do something, to do something brand new, do something new that's never been done before, get some knowledge that's never been acquired before. You know, it's not prestige. It's, I can assure you it's not money. Open to looking for need. I'd like to do something that's meaningful. So when I was a uh, graduate student at Princeton, one day a scientist came from the University of British Columbia, and he came to the university, and he said he wanted to access our bivalve collection. So do you know what a bivalve is? I don't know where, how it's much, like a clam. Yeah, like a clam. <laughs> So it, it turns out that Princeton had, from studies that it had done in the 19th century, the best collection of bivalves anywhere in the world. This guy was doing bivalve biology at the University of British Columbia, and he wanted to look at or some specimens relative to what he was finding. So, you know, all the professors, the senior professors, bivalve collection. This is the molecular biology department. Bivalve collection. So they start... Um, asking people, does anybody know about, you know, the most senior people there? And then finally, one of the um, facilities administrators said, oh, yeah. He said, yeah. He said, remember, we wanted to 
open up some new space for a new scientist who's coming in new labs. And remember, in order to open up that space, we had to throw out all those old shells. So anyway, the guy, I, I think the guy almost had a stroke. At the time, it was a really big deal. But today, you know, maybe there's a half a dozen people who give a darn. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to thank you for your time, Don. And I want to encourage my listeners again to look for your book, The Drug Hunters, um, The Improbable Quest to Discover New Medicines. Um, it's a really good read of the history of, of medicines. And I, I, I encourage them to read it. Improbable Developments is brought to you by Salem Oaks Consulting, empowering patients to shape the future of medicine. Special thanks to sound designer Jake Tompkins who produced this episode. The Improbable Developments podcast is brought to you by Salem Oaks. We are committed to empowering patients, caregivers, and advocates to shape the future of medicine. Have you ever wondered how medicines are discovered and developed? We can help. Check us out at SalemOaks.com 